0: Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather in the name of your Son, to learn, to be encouraged, to be convicted. We're here at your mercy, and we certainly need you to work in our lives, so please do that now, even during this time when we study your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus said, he spoke of me. And Jesus was talking about Moses. He was talking about Moses and the Exodus when he said, He spoke of me. Therefore, we've been trying, I've been trying my best as we've been studying the book of Exodus, as we've been studying the Exodus, which is all about Moses. I've been trying my, my very best. I hope you have too, to read Exodus, to study Exodus. And to do so in a way that is distinctly Christian. I've been working so hard to read Exodus and preach through the book of Exodus and, and not pretend like I'm an unbeliever. And hopefully you've been doing the same thing because if we're Christians, we're not unbelievers. And so we want to read the Bible the way Jesus wants us to read the Bible. As Christians, Jesus himself in John chapter 5 said, he, Moses, spoke of me. Well, today, Lord willing, we're going to continue in that same kind of vein, trying to read the Bible in a Christianly way, because after all, newsflash, we're Christians. This is a Christian church, um, and we read Christian Bibles. And so we want to read the Bible in a Christianly way. Today, we're going to wrap up our study of the book of Exodus. So if you have a Bible, you can find the second book. Remember, Exodus is about exiting, pretty straightforward. It's about leaving. And God's people, the Israelites, were oppressed. They were enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh for a long, long time. And God dramatically, supernaturally, uniquely through Moses, who functions as a mediator, who functions as a savior, as the Christ figure, if you will, prefiguring Christ leads the people out, redeems the people out, buys the people out of enslavement and sets them free and aims them toward the promised land, toward Jerusalem. We're going to wrap up today. Uh, Exodus 35 to 40. I think that's six chapters. So we are going to order takeout We're not going to. As a matter of fact, all along, I've been trying not to do every syllable, trying not to do every word, because this all started as an overview, a four-week overview, so welcome to week 18 of a four-week overview. But the whole point has been to just do the overview, and you might be pleased to know, you might be not pleased to know, I'm not sure, but the last six chapters are review. They cover things that have already... Happened, and so we're not going to look at the details of the last six chapters. They're important because they give a detailed account of how to build the tabernacle. Well, we've already—it's already been covered in the Book of Exodus, and so in a sense, we're already done. Because unless we're going to reread on how to build or ta- build a tabernacle. Um, we can do a wrap-up today, So, and we're not trying to build a tabernacle. One thing you should learn from the book of Exodus is that we're not called to build a tabernacle. Um, it's important. It was important for them. Uh, it's less important for us. It's more important for us to understand what a tabernacle is and future tabernacles, and we're going to talk about that today. So here's the plan. We're going to come up with, I have a top 10 list, okay, of takeaways from the book of Exodus. So what we're going to do is not look at the last six chapters, which would be repetition. We're going to step back and say, all right, as we finish this, what are some good takeaways What are things we should remember? What things should I remember as a pastor, as a Christian? What should you remember as a Christian? What should you remember as a Bible student, as a Bible reader? So when you're reading Matthew or you're reading the book of Acts or you're reading the Revelation or you're reading Leviticus, what are things that we want to keep in mind from the book of Exodus? So it'll be a topical study, top 10 list in that sense today because we've really covered all of the data already. Fair enough? Hope it's fair enough. It's what I have. Um, that, that's the plan. And so let's have some takeaways, things to remember from the book of Exodus. And if this is your first week, hopefully this motivates you to read the book of Exodus. Um, usually here's how it goes for me. Cause I'm not the, the brightest crayon in the box. Um, usually when we're done with a study, I think now I'm ready. Uh, it's kind of how that goes. So, um, now I really want to read the book of Exodus, and I kind of hope you do too, now that we're done with the overview. Takeaway number one in our wrap-up. Takeaway number one, Exodus reveals God. Exodus reveals God in a profound, extraordinary way. Exodus reveals God. If you go back to chapter 3, you'll see this, and this is where uh, it, you have this profound question, because the Israelites know that people are going to say, "Now, now, who is your God? because they weren't atheists the people have tons of gods gods for everything you can imagine uh so god for this a god for that a god a god for uh, all sorts of things you want to cover all of your bases and so if we're talking about the god of the israelites who's going to redeem them out of egypt who's he another way to ask that is what's his name Because if we know his name, we'll know if he's the God of fire, if he's the God of water, the God of the sun, the God of the dead, the God of the living, or whatever it might be. Exodus 3.13, we heard the question, what is his name? What shall I say to them in 3.13? And the answer comes in verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And you should be thinking, I think, if you pretend like you didn't know the significance, what kind of answer is that? I think that's the right response for us. What, what kind of answer is that? that? That's different. That's not the kind of answer anyone would be listening for or looking for. That's not the right way to answer that kind of question. But see, that's the profundity of the answer. I'm not like any of the other gods. You can't assign my name to anything in creation. I'm not limited by any of those things, even some of those important things. I am. Mic drop. I am the self-existent one. I am the transcendent one. I am not the God of the creation. I'm the creator. I am the one above all of it. I'm the one. Here's an important biblical word, and it might help you. I'm holy. Remember, holy means different. It means distinct. And I often, some of you tire of me saying this, for effect, it means strange. Not as in bad, but as in no, no point of reference. I'm holy. Anytime you see the word holy in the Bible, it's separate, it's distinct, it's unique. For something special, to do something special. And God is holy, holy, holy. The angels say in the book of Isaiah, I am. It's good to know. It's really good to know. It's very profound. It's, theologically profound well if we continue to move through the book perhaps if you want to move all the way toward the end to chapter 33 there's so much we could read in Exodus that tells us about God but we had to start there because of the great I am statement but in Exodus 33 and as you're finding that thirty-three nineteen, I will remind you that we'll go on in the New Testament to hear Jesus say about himself what? I am he claims to be that one before Abraham was, I am. He claims to be that very unique God. But let's let's move on to the other side of the book, if you will. In thirty three nineteen, we just saw this. I think it was last week. Perhaps it was the week before. And he said, "I will make my goodness so we've learned that God is good pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Uh, so, the, so the sovereign, the provider, the protector, the king." And I will be gracious. So we've learned that he's gracious. He doesn't give people what they deserve. He gives them something that they don't earn. To whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And if you're newer to theology, newer to the Bible, it's probably a little bit of an overstatement, but you capture the general idea to say, uh, mercy is God withholding what people do deserve, condemnation. It's the negative. And grace is the positive side of mercy. It's giving people what they didn't earn. It's a pretty good way to understand things. He's that kind of God. The Israelites aren't redeemed because they're faithful. They they aren't redeemed because they've done all of the right things. No, that's not the case. He redeems them because he's merciful. He redeems them because he's gracious. And we need to remember that. It's good for us to see. But also see in that same verse, he does say something rather unsettling If you've never thought about it before, I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I'm not obligated to show either to anyone. It's another way of saying, and we say about God, He's sovereign. He's free. God does whatever He wants to do with His creation, with His generosity, Remember, everyone deserves condemnation, and so he's free to extend his grace and his mercy as he sees fit. And that's a bit troubling until it's comforting, until it's awe-inspiring, until it is where we're with the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1, we don't really know why he's extended it to us. Because we know we're not better than other people, but it causes us to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in him. (sighs) Thank you. I praise you. Now, I understand that we could talk about God hardening Pharaoh's heart and those kinds of things. There's a lot more to be said. But for now, let's get ready to move on. But let's acknowledge that not everybody likes theology. Not everybody likes the study of God uh, for different reasons. Maybe it gets a bad rap because sometimes people aren't very good about it. They're not very friendly about it. They don't see any practicality in it. Moses did show me your glory. If I'm going to lead these people, I need to know more about you. We talked about that last week. I just want to encourage you that there's no greater reality than to think about who God is. If the greatest commandment is loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And flowing out of that, you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. Theology is not the only thing in life. <laughs> but without it, we're, we're, we're destined to, to be empty and wrong-headed. To think about God... As one person said, perhaps the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. Dorothy L. Sayers, the British crime novelist and playwright, a long, long time ago, said this regarding people who make fun of theology and find it uninteresting. Remember, she's a playwright. She's into drama. She's into literature, an expert, famous. She said, it is the dogma, the theology, that is the drama. And I think as I read her, she's saying, you want want to know the greatest drama ever? You want to know the greatest history or storyline ever in all of storylines? It's dogma. It's settled theology. Christian settled theology. She, she goes on to say this, not beautiful phrases, nor comforting sentiments, nor vague aspirations to loving kindness and uplift, nor the promise of something nice after death. And she's making fun of supposed Christians that don't like theology. But the terrifying assertion that the same God who made the world lived in the world and passed through the grave and gate of death, show that to the unbeliever, she says. And they may not believe it, but at least they may realize that here is something that a man might be glad to believe. I like sayers. She gets it least in this sense. What could be more important than the thought of God? Number 2, another takeaway. The second one we're going to look at today, we're going to do 10 of these. It's just an overview of of our survey of Exodus. Number 2, Exodus gives us the moral law. Exodus gives us the moral law. Now, where I'm going there is You expected me, perhaps, to say, give us the Ten Commandments, because it does. It's in chapter 20. We have the Ten Commandments. It's most famous for the Ten Commandments, probably. And it's important because the Ten Commandments are important. But just for our sake here today, I just want to remind you that we learned in Exodus, not only the Ten Commandments, which are all true and they're all important, I just want to remind you, because lots of Christians don't know this and we might forget this, The Ten Commandments are just giving us the moral law. The Ten Commandments are writing down from God, uniquely, yes, for the people of Israel, but the Ten Commandments in the moral law already existed before the Ten Commandments. I I, I know that they existed before the Ten Commandments, Commandments because in Exodus 16, verse 28... And I'm, again, I'll admit it again, I'm not the brightest crayon, crayon in the box, but the last time I checked, Exodus 16 comes before Exodus 20. Okay, you, am I going too fast for you? <laughs> before the Ten Commandments are given, before Israel gets the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 16, 28, it says, and the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? There was law before there's law. That's important. Romans chapter 2, we won't go there for the sake of time. Romans chapter 2 talks about how the law is written on people's hearts. Every single person who's ever been born has the law of God written on their heart, and they know there's something about being wrong and right. Even if Romans 1 tells us they hold it down and suppress the truth because they love sin, and I'm paraphrasing. But I just want to remind you that everyone, you don't have to have the Ten Commandments to have the Ten Commandments. Because people already know there's right and wrong. We have to remind them. We have to call them on it and call them on their guilt so that they see their need for a Savior. But let's remember, even in the book of Exodus, let's learn from the book of Exodus so that it it matters in the way we live our lives. I appeal to all people, believers and unbelievers, people who have Bibles and don't have Bibles, people who have the Ten Commandments posted or don't, they know right and wrong. And deep down inside, they know right and wrong, and so I call them on it as a Christian preacher and as a Christian, so that they can see their need for Christ, because we're all violators of God's moral law. Let's move on for the sake of time. A third takeaway from Exodus that I will always want to remember, and that is Exodus reveals depravity. It reveals sin. In a gross, grotesque, awful kind of way. And here's where it's easy. We learn about Pharaoh. What a horrible guy he was. And the Egyptians enslaving the Israelites. And just hard-hearted and awful. And all of the bad things and all of the bad treatment. So I remember that and it's truly bad. That's sinful. But we also need to remember... We've learned a lot about sin in Exodus from whom? Regarding the Israelites. We've got a good dose of it. Remember in chapter 24, not in 24 verse 7, and then I'll look at 32 verse 4, in Exodus 24, 7, then the book of the covenant, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And I love the sound of that. That's right. You know, what? whatever God says, we're going to do what God says. The book of Exodus reveals the sinfulness of sin, and it reveals the depravity of the human heart because we all know now If you've been with us for more than a week, and if you're just joining us, we'll let you know. Grossly, they don't do it. So they say they're going to. We're good people. We're faithful people. We're committed. We're not like the gods of the nations. We're not like the Egyptians. We're not like the this kind of ite, or that kind of ite, or that kind of ite. We're different. We'll obey God. We're good people. They're not. We see it in chapter 32. For example, they make the golden calf. Moses is gone for a half a second, it seems. And then they say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Chapter 32, verse 4. And you just go, oh my God. What? Oh my goodness. It's really good for us to grapple with the fact that the people of God are grossly idolatrous. They need a savior as much as the Egyptians do. They need to look outside of themselves as much as the Egyptians do. And we can talk about the grumbling. I I, I lost track at 10 times. Grumbling, 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 grumbling. You get the idea. It doesn't need to be 10 times. They're characterized by God redeemed us. God set us free by grace alone. Ultimately, we didn't deserve it. Complain, 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 complain. Oh, the awfulness of the human heart is what we end up seeing. Let's move on because you look like you're getting depressed. You don't want to hear any more about sin. Number four, we're doing 10 of these by way of review, things we want to remember from Exodus. Takeaway number four is Exodus is a key. Exodus is a key as in it is a super important key. It is a vital key. It is a master key that unlocks so many different doors. This is maybe the reason why I wanted to do Exodus to begin with. If you want to understand the Bible... Read the Bible, but you want to, you know, cheat a little bit? No, not cheat. Read the book of Exodus. And then so much makes sense, so much more makes sense. It is an interpretive key to understanding the whole Bible. I didn't, I'm not smart enough to check all this, but scholars would tell us next to Isaiah and the Psalms. No book is utilized more than the book of Exodus when it comes to the rest of the Bible, and in particular, the New Testament. So yeah, Isaiah is important. Yes, the Psalms are important, but the Exodus, if you really want to get it, you really want to understand, you got to study Exodus. And that's why we did the overview that we did. One person said it this way, the organizing principle in all of the New Testament is the book of Exodus. I think that might be an overstatement. But you get the idea. From the book of Acts, to Romans, to Galatians, to 1st and 2nd Peter, Exodus, Exodus, Exodus. And in 1st Corinthians, the apostle Paul even says, Christ is the rock. What is that about? And he's talking about the Exodus. Gerhardus Voss, what a cool name. Our next child is going to be named Gerhardus. Um, Maybe our next dog is going to be named Gerhardus. That's how that's going to go. Gerhardus Vos, he's labeled as the the father of reformed biblical theology. And when we say biblical theology, we, we don't just mean theology that's biblical. It's how the whole storyline develops. And, and how the drama of redemption unfolds from Genesis to Revelation. And how it organically, naturally unfolds and develops as if there's one divine author because there is. And one of the most famous people is Gerhardus Voss. He was at Princeton back when Princeton had a soul. So, pre-Machin days... But Voss said this, the exodus from Egypt is the Old Testament redemption. I think he's right. Do you want to understand redemption? Huge New Testament theme. Uh, To be redeemed means that a price is paid and your freedom is purchased. Okay? It's slave market terminology. And so if... Your freedom is bought. Someone pays the price. And so you are set free. Redemption. Christ redeems us from the curse of the law over and over and over and over again. Well, where's that drawing upon? The Old Testament, right? God redeems the people out of Egypt and sets them free and aims them toward the promised land. Every single time for the rest of my life, I think when I come across that redemption theme in the New Testament, I'm going to think of the motif. I'm going to think of the key. I'm going to think of the illusion, where it comes from. Someone else referred to it as God's mega narrative. I like that. Someone else said, no other Old Testament motif is as crucial to understand than the Exodus. Let's move on to another one of these. The next takeaway from the book of Exodus, and that is Exodus is for Christians. We'll do, do this one just super quick. Exodus is for Christians. It's for Christians for lots of different reasons. It's not because Christians should build tabernacles. Uh, it's not because Christians um, should utilize all of this to figure out how that they can somehow go to the promised land and kill all the ites and rebuild a new Jerusalem. It's not for that reason, but it is for Christians so that we can learn about redemption. We've already talked about that, so I'm just reviewing. It is for Christians so that we can learn about uh, having a mediator, Moses, in that case in Exodus. We look to a greater Moses. It's so Christians can learn about the things such as the Passover, Passover lamb, we'll talk more about that. But it's also for Christians to learn about Christian living. In First Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul specifically does this. He specifically says, Now these things, the Exodus things, took place as examples for us, Christians, that we might not desire evil as they did. He's assuming you know the story. We all do know the story now, at least in part. Grumblers and complainers, idolaters, even though they've been set free by the Lord, the Apostle Paul says at least one reason why we have Exodus in that history is so that we, as the people of God, could learn not to be like them. It's important that we would know that. It's written for Christians. Maybe a good assignment for you would be... um, come up with your outline for a paper. If you had to write a paper and it had to be called The Gospel According to Exodus, I wonder what your chapter headings would be like or your paragraph headings would be like. On the list, hopefully, would be The Gospel According to Exodus teaches us, yes, redemption, yes, um, Passover ultimately but also that Christians would not be such grumblers and complainers given that God has been so gracious to us that would be good be helpful please don't write a paper because I found over the years as a pastor I don't like teaching classes and asking people to write papers because I have to be nice (laughs) so much nicer to be a professor because you don't have to be nice. <laughs> People are paying you to be mean to them. It's amazing. <laughs> I remember getting one paper back in seminary, and I think that perhaps, the, the kindest, most gracious professor I think I had, but I think perhaps there was more red on my paper than there was black ink. <sighs> okay, we better move on to the next one. Number six. Take away from Exodus number six. Exodus anticipates the true and better Moses. It anticipates the true and better Moses. I, I wanted to do the series to help you read your Bible better. Yes, for sure. As a as a motif, key to unlocking things. But related to that, I so badly wanted to, to do this overview to help you to see the connections. To see Moses is really important. But... By design, he's not meant to be the end game. If you have a Bible and you can find the book of Acts in the seventh chapter, I think it's worth looking at. I would like us to look at Acts seven because the apostle Peter says something, some things, super, super profound things about Moses. Our tendency is to perhaps just read the book of Exodus and we think, man, Moses is the man. And I think we should think he is the man, lowercase m. But when we read the Bible like Jesus wants us to, that he wrote about me, we step back and say, you know what? He's the man, but he's not designed to be the man. He's designed to point towards someone greater. Peter helps us with this in Acts chapter seven, verse 35, verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made, "Who made you ruler and a judge?" This man, God sent as both ruler and redeemer." He's, he's drawing upon Moses, who, who's ruler and judge. And then he says, this man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. He's connecting the two together by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Moses is judge. Moses is ruler. Moses is the redeemer figure. And Peter's connecting the dots so that we could read our Bibles like Christians. Peter sees it. Let's keep going. By the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the in the bush, this man led them out performing wonders and signs. Hello, right? Signs and wonders, miracles. In Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. So Peter is, is doing the very thing that we should do and say, you know what? Moses was the guy. Moses is the Redeemer. Moses is, is, is the prophet figure. Moses is the mediator figure. Moses is the one that God used to do supernatural things. Always and forever, Peter would have us to know designed to point toward the ultimate Redeemer, the ultimate mediator. Moses is designed to do this. And so when we do that in the book of Exodus, we're not doing weird things. We're just acknowledging that there's been this unfolding drama of redemption all along. And God gives us pictures ahead of time to anticipate, types ahead of time to anticipate the ultimate, shadows ahead of time to anticipate the ultimate so that we would understand better. And and as we like to say so often around here at Omaha Bible Church, once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's no wonder that Jesus says what he says in John 5. I opened with it in 546. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. Pretty interesting to think about. If you do a word search in the book of Exodus and look for the word Jesus, I don't think you'll find it. But Moses was writing about him through types and shadows. Through the historic events that were happening, oh yes, it absolutely was not the end game. It's looking to Christ. It's so interesting. In, in John 5, in addition, Jesus is confronting, how about this? Jesus in John 5 is confronting people who say they believe the Bible is true. We would call them, uh, biblical inerrantists. They believe in the the inerrancy, the infallibility, the inspiration, the sufficiency, whatever other E you want to have. The Bible is true. And Jesus lets them have it. Because, I'm paraphrasing, He says, you think you find eternal life in the words of the Bible. You don't. Moses wrote about me. What you should be finding there is... Redemption through a substitute who's greater than Moses. That's why I like to say, let's not pretend like we're unbelievers. Jesus lets the unbelievers have it. But they weren't people who denied the Bible being true. They just didn't read the Bible the right way. So we want to learn from that. We could go on, we could talk about how Moses ascends the mountain and Jesus ascends the mountain, not at Sinai, but at Galilee and the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus makes the comparisons. You've heard it said, but I say to you, all of these images throughout help us to see there's a greater Moses, mediator, intercessor. When Moses prays and God hears his prayer and spares the people, obviously Jesus prays for his own, that none would be lost and it happens. Okay, let's move on to another one, number seven. Number seven, Exodus anticipates the true and better son. Exodus anticipates the true and better son. If you go back to Exodus four, you'll see it. I beg of you to see it because it's another thing I don't want you to ever unsee. In Exodus 4, it says in verse 22. This should be an aha moment. So I'm looking for all the little, you know, emojis to come off the top of your heads. Because it's, aha. Oh, wow. Exodus anticipates the true and better son. The true and better one. Exodus 4.22 says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh thus says the Lord Israel is my firstborn son (laughs) see what's happening I think back when we studied this and we looked at it I probably asked a provocative true or false question Israel's God's firstborn son because in any other setting we'd say that's false we know that's false because we've read the New Testament. We don't. We know for sure who God's firstborn son is. Absolutely, we know who His firstborn son is. Son is uh, Hebrews chapter one, Colossians chapter one. Jesus is God's firstborn son. He's the preeminent one, firstborn of all. He, Jesus and Jesus alone deserves the title firstborn, the preeminent one, the one with all of the rights and privileges. Jesus alone is the firstborn son. And then you read Exodus 4 and you go... Mentally, and in a sense, I want you to think, that can't be true. That is so not true. I think it is true. They are his firstborn son as a shadow, in anticipation, as a type waiting for the true, ultimate, faithful, the firstborn son, the one who deserves all the rights and privileges, the one who deserves to be called the firstborn son. Hebrews 1:6 is the passage I referenced. Colossians 1:18 is the passage I referenced. Israel is my firstborn son and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. I'll never ever 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 forget that. Israel's is God's firstborn son. But not ultimately so they're designed to anticipate the ultimate one. The one other passage that we could think about here and I think we have time to do it and I'll speed up on other things if need be would be in Matthew chapter 2 verse 15. And I'll read Matthew 2:15. I'll give you a moment to find it if you'd like to, but Matthew does the same thing. Matthew does the same thing with Israel out of Egypt and then we have Jesus out of Egypt. Jesus is the ultimate faithful one. Not the geopolitical nation. In Matthew chapter two, verse fifteen it says They're to remain there until the death of Herod. This is talking about the birth of Jesus and the infancy of Jesus. And then it says in Matthew two, fifteen, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, the prophet Hosea, this is Hosea eleven to one, out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt I called my son. What's happening? God calls his son, Israel, out of Egypt. He redeems his son, Israel, out of Egypt. That's what happens. Don't, don't miss this. In Matthew chapter two, he's saying that applies to Jesus, the ultimate son. But don't miss it in our text. If you look at our text, he says, it's to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Hosea, which is really interesting because if you read Exodus, it doesn't read like prophecy. It reads like historic narrative. Think with me. I know it's early or late in the sermon, one of the two. I think he's asking us to think of historical narrative as prophetic How could that be? What happens in the Exodus with a deliverance out of Egypt is prophetic in the sense that it is designed to look forward to in the future a different son that would be delivered out of Egypt. I've got the weird grin on my face because for me these kind of dot connections in a lot of ways, change everything about the way I read my Bible. Or they change a lot of things. This historic narrative in the Exodus is prophetic. It's fulfilled in the ultimate one, Christ. Amazing stuff. Absolutely amazing. Makes me want to read the Bible again. Maybe from a Christian perspective. Okay, let's do 8, 9, and 10. Number 8, the next takeaway would be Exodus anticipates a better Passover. This one's super easy. We'll do it super fast, but it's super important. It's the true and better Passover. So we learn in Exodus about the Passover, so you have to have the people free. How are they going to be set free? The angel of death is going to come. Everyone deserves to die, and so there's going to be death that visits the families. And so what happens is God calls his people to sacrifice, to have there be a substitute, to apply the blood, and through the blood, then there's going to be the passing over of the angel of death. All of that happens. It's profound. It's awful in the sense that it's that it's devastating for people to come to grips with the fact that there's so much death. But we know, we know, we know that when we get to the New Testament, In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 7. You might not know that, but you know it's in the New Testament. Christ, our Passover lamb. And you go, yeah, that makes sense. Makes total sense. He's the ultimate Passover lamb. And if God wasn't born yesterday or in the New Testament or something like that, if he is the great I am, the transcendent one, who's had a purpose and a decree all along before creation begins, Allah, Ephesians chapter one, all of those other things the other Passover lambs were by divine design planned to look forward to the ultimate Passover lamb. And no doubt that's the case. So Exodus anticipates Christ. Redemption through substitution. And you get to the New Testament and it's redemption through substitution. Spotless Lamb of God. Number 9, then we'll do number 10. Next two takeaways. Exodus anticipates the true and better tabernacle, the true and better temple. The last six chapters, not to mention, it's already been covered. Tabernacle, 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 tabernacle. That's all over the book of Exodus. It means unique dwelling. It's a tent word and it goes on. When they get to Israel, uh, when they get into the land, then it's going to be temple, but it's the same basic concept. It has more permanence, but not ultimate permanence, but it's where God uniquely dwells, where God is uniquely with his people so that they can rest. Rest from fear of their enemies. God is with us. God is protecting us. God is providing for us. So the tabernacle is super important in Exodus. It's vitally important in Exodus. But when we read our Bibles and we keep reading, we say, there's a better tabernacle, right? We're meant to see that there's a better tabernacle. Let's see that it's crucial and it's important. We saw some of that last week. But then when Jesus comes on the scene, John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh. The eternal word becomes flesh. Jesus becoming a human being, the God-man. And you all know the passage if you've been a Christian very long at all. The word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. And you learn in Sunday school class, it means tabernacle. And for a long time, I'm like, and what does that mean? (laughs) Yeah, he, he's the fulfillment. He's the ultimate tabernacle. He's the ultimate unique dwelling with his people. And if he's uniquely with us, we don't have to be afraid. We have rest. We have Sabbath because God is in our presence. So tabernacle becomes a huge major theme. So when I read about it and all the details and all the factors and all that stuff, maybe I, you know, get distracted a little bit. There's so many details. Probably because it's really important. At least take that away. So that we're then ready to say, when Jesus tabernacles among us, even more important. He's the one it was anticipating. Temple is similar. We move on beyond that. If we were to take the time to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it says, you, plural, he's talking about the church, are God's temple. The the, the more stable tabernacle, if you will, because it looks forward to that. The church is God's unique dwelling. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I know it's the verse that fundamentalists tell you to use to maybe eat better and not smoke cigarettes and things like that because you're God's temple, Um, but actually it's in the plural. It's the church together, so the church probably as a building and as a corporate entity shouldn't smoke cigarettes. Okay, I'm, I'm totally off target. If that makes no sense to you, I'm sorry. But when you're growing up in a church context, it's only eat health food and don't overeat and don't do anything bad because you're God's temple and we quote 1 Corinthians 3 and it's not a good look. Maybe it's true. The surgeon, You should listen to the Surgeon General. Um, but the, 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 the point of 1 Corinthians 3 is the church is the unique dwelling of God. It's the, it's the unique... Tabernacling, but he uses temple, but it's the same idea. The church is special and important. And so we should care about sin, not those other things that just distracted us. We should care about sin because we are the unique dwelling of God where we are, if you will, spiritually safe. It's one of the reasons I love church. I love the gathered body, the corporate body, because the unique dwelling of God is among us, and he reminds us that he will protect us, and he will provide for us, and he will take care of us. So when we read about the tabernacle in the old, it's looking forward to Jesus, it's looking forward to Jesus' church, and ultimately, it's looking forward to what we would say the church consummated. Revelation chapter 21, where we have the unique, 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 without any limitation, what we're looking forward to, the consummated tabernacling with the people of God in the new creation. Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. Okay, we better go to number 10 and wrap this up. Number 10, Exodus anticipates the true and better promised land. It anticipates the true and better promised land in Exodus, it's all about being freed and then going to the land. Freed and going to the land. Why? Because Abraham, God promised it to Abraham and uh, the the family of Abraham. And so they're going to go to the promised land. It's all about that where there's going to be rest, where there's going to be peace. And it's going to be the land flowing with milk and honey. It's meant to be good and enjoyable and safe. But if we read the rest of our Bibles, we know. was never the ultimate but it does anticipate the ultimate it does shadow the ultimate it does typify the ultimate and that is what we have at the end of the bible in revelation in revelation chapter 21 verse 2 and i saw the holy city new jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god prepared as a bride adorned for her husband In Exodus, they're headed to Jerusalem because it's the best place on earth for the people of God. Well, That's always meant to anticipate something greater. The best place on earth that didn't come from on earth. It comes from heaven where God is uniquely with His people and there's no more sin, there's no more sorrow, there's no more struggle. We're looking forward to the Jerusalem that's from above, the heavenly Jerusalem. Exodus in a microcosm, temporary, less than perfect way, is meant to help us to see what is the ultimate and is to come. Let's end on this. In the book of Hebrews where Christians are being persecuted and Christians are suffering and Christians are ostracized and Christians are getting kicked out of their families because they come from a Jewish family and now they can't go to the temple anymore. Think tabernacle, unique dwelling of God, and things are really hard. And they're thinking about going back to the shadows. They're thinking about going back to the, let's read the whole thing without Jesus. Contrary to John chapter 5. And the author to Hebrews says this. This is Hebrews twelve twenty two. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings. Is that true? Well, it must be true because that's what the author says, but... In practicality, it's actually not true. But he says that it is true. Why? He says, you have come right there to the heavenly Jerusalem. It's because they've come to Christ. It's because they're trusting in Christ. And if they're in Christ, united to Christ by faith, it's already certain and as good as done. So... They were still waiting for the Jerusalem to come down from above just like we are. But he makes the profound promise that I want to echo to you. If you're in Christ, you're already there. You've already come to the heavenly Mount Zion. And so that drives us to not succumb to temptation. It drives us to not succumb to persecution and the pressures that come. Because if you're in Christ... You're already a citizen. It's already been inaugurated. We use that kind of terminology, but we're waiting for the consummation. But you have come to the new Jerusalem. It's certain. And I love that. I so love that. It's as good as done. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for time at Omaha Bible Church. Thank you for the things we learn. Thank you for the fact that you're patient with us. There's so many things we don't know. If we're honest and we know something about our own sinful human hearts, there's so many things that we don't know because... We're sinful, because we're lazy, because we don't have good enough Bible teachers or good enough pastors. I mean, there's so many things. But thank you that we can know things that are true and we can know things like we have come to Mount Zion and we have come into the heavenly Jerusalem because we're in Christ. And may that cause us to be rejoicing. May it cause us to be eager to face the future no matter what we face in this life. Because our certainty is found not in ourselves and being good enough, but it's found in being in Christ by faith in whose name we pray. Amen.